Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast and happy Tuesday. And because we want to keep it a happy Tuesday, I'm not going to uh, even mention what the World Bank is predicting for the world economy because that would just be slightly depressing. We need some more upbeat news, which of course is why we we invited Jonathan Allen, senior national politics reporter for NBC News, back on the podcast. So happy, happy Tuesday, Jonathan. Well, I am so happy it's Tuesday. And from the, the uh, economic projections, you can do the acronym for so happy it's Tuesday as compared to, thank God, it's Friday. And <laughs> well, e- exactly. So um, we match up. So right before we started the podcast, I, I confess to you that I am still locked in my skeptical, cynical mode about uh, negotiations about gun control. Uh, there have been a lot of reports, though, that would suggest that um, members of the Senate are saying, look, we are we're working on something. We're, we're going for a consensus bill, not something that will pass with just 60 votes, but a piece of legislation that would actually be supported by a majority of the Republican caucus. And John Cornyn is, you know, talking about the possibility of getting something done. And Chris Murphy, who is one of the uh, rare grown-ups in the room, um, seems to be willing to compromise on lots of things. It's not going to be comprehensive. But I don't know, see, Jonathan, I, 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 am, am I just a prisoner of all of my past broken expectations or is, and I've asked this several times on the podcast. And I just want to get people different, different perspectives. Will they get anything done? Am I, I really desperately want to be wrong. Am I wrong to be skeptical? I mean, there's, there's like sort of an index, I guess, of like the more likely they are to get something done, the less it is that they're doing. Right. Uh, and the less more that good, they're doing, good, the less yeah. likely it is to get done. So, I, I mean, we've watched this movie so many times in Congress. And I know. Whether it was Sandy Hook or Marjorie Stoneman Douglas or Gabby Giffords getting shot in the head uh, during, <sighs> you know, a multiple killing uh, shooting in Arizona or Steve Scalise and other Republican congressmen being shot on a ball field outside Washington. They don't do anything. And the reason, the biggest reason that they don't do anything is because their constituents don't want them to. And I, I let me specify that that's uh, on the Republican side, on the Democratic side, most of their constituents want them to do a lot more in terms of regulating guns. Uh, I think there's this sort of trope that the Republican Party is owned by the NRA, but of course the NRA is, uh, has been influential in the past, and I think it's less influential than it is now, than it was then. But like the reason that it's influential is because there are a whole lot of people who vote on the gun issue, and they vote in Republican primaries, and they vote in general elections, and, uh, you know, um, this is the cause. This is the reason you see so many former Republican congressmen talking about how we need gun control now, who did not say that when they were in office. Yeah, that's right. I mean, even though we have polls showing you know the vast majority of Americans supporting uh, incremental change on gun safety or gun responsibility, uh, the fact is that. It, the reality of politics is determined by a very vocal minority uh, that votes in Republican primaries. So even if it's only 40 percent of Republicans that are hair on fire against any gun control measure, that's enough to shut down any any Republican elected official. I mean, that's the way it works, right? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, it's just it's a passion issue. Yeah, um, And it's one that's completely it's inter- interesting. I mean, I travel the country and I talk to voters everywhere. I was in Wyoming. Um, a couple of weeks ago for a Trump rally and to write about uh, the Liz Cheney, Harriet Hageman contest. And I was talking to a Republican couple in uh, Cheyenne and, and they were saying, you know, the first thing that they said when I asked them about guns is we need to uh, address the root cause and the root cause is mental illness. And I thought right. here I'm going to get, you know, sort of Republican talking points from the Republican voters. And then we went a couple questions deeper and these folks owned guns and said, yeah, it makes sense to ban AR-15s. 
My mm. takeaway from that was because it took so long into the conversation to get to the point where they were like, yeah, we should ban AR-15s. I realized that this was not the issue on which they're voting. Right. Okay. So that was not their trigger. So you've seen this new CBS poll. And the one number I can't take my eyes off of is the 44% of Republicans who said that mass shooting should be accepted as part of a free society. And I read that over. That's scary. Okay. It's, it's scary. And I thought, okay, there, there must be some misunderstanding here. Okay. Right. So they, you know, 44% of Republicans said mass shootings are inevitable quote as part of a free society. Now, 85% of Democrats, 73% of independents say that no mass shootings are preventable. Um, if we really tried, <laughs> you know, I, when you read that, I mean, I understand this conflation of, you know, freedom, you know, and the AR-15, but to basically say that we have to accept it as part of a free society. I mean, that, Jonathan, help, talk me down on this one. I would just say that part of the reason that we have government is to arbitrate when freedoms come in conflict and there may be a freedom to own a gun, uh, but there should also be, and the government should protect the freedom to go to school, the freedom to go to the grocery store, you know, the freedom to express your opinion without being shot. So, you know, I mean, this is the, the sort of conundrum of our politics is, is everybody's desire to have freedom for me, but not be. Yeah. And in order to have, I think almost everyone would agree with this concept to the extent that they think about it. Like in order to have freedoms, you need to have them protected. Somebody needs to protect them and a government has the ability to do that. And, and the government has to balance the interests, the various interests of freedom. And right now we are, we are clearly out of balance um, when it comes to uh, the ease with which someone can just pull off one of these you know, horrific mass shootings. What, what I think is really extraordinary is you realize this sort of inversion of the, the political universe because, uh, you know, conservatives and Republicans would never have said that acts of terrorism are the pri- and the inevitable part of a free society. Um, conservatives and Republicans would never say that about street violence, urban violence, uh, the number of people that are being killed. You know, that's the kind of thing that you would have expected, you know, maybe from a seminar um, of, uh, you know, folks in Berkeley saying, well, you know, yes, uh, you know, we, 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 we shouldn't uh, crack down on, uh, you know, Islamic terrorism because that's the price that we have to pay for being in a free society. Or yes, there's lots of, you know, carnage in, in the streets, but that is the price that we have to pay. Conservatives and Republicans have rejected that kind of logic for decades. And suddenly they're going, no, this kind of mass murder, when a teenager with an AR-15 guns down 19 children, well, that's just inevitable. That's the price we have to pay. I mean, there's something deeply broken there. Yeah, I mean, we are obviously struggling with this as a society at large. Um, and, and well, most of us, right, 44% of Republicans you know, say that it's, an inevitable part of a free society. I, I find that alarming, and, and maybe you're right that there was some confusion in the poll. Um, I don't I, know that. No, I don't know that there's confusion in the poll. I think there's confusion in people's minds. I I, yeah. I, I just think that this the the fetishization of guns, you know, is is you know hand in hand with this that this is the symbol of my manhood and my freedom. You know, I, I found a New York Times article from uh, I think it was like four years ago. You know, about the AR-15, you know, for those who love the rifle, it is seen as a testament to freedom, a rite of passage shared between parents and children. 
really. Right, a token uh, to welcome soldiers home, a tradition shared with friends at the range. And yet you think about in the last four years, we, we, we could spend the rest of the podcast me reading to you the mass murders committed with that gun. And yet nothing's changed. Yeah, I mean, the, the semi-automatic rifles that, you know, for, for the layperson pretty much seem like automatic rifles. Uh, you know, I've, I've fired an AR-15 at a gun range before. There's there's not much purpose to it, um, you know, other than killing a, uh, a large number of people indiscriminately in a small space. Um, I mean, you know, on a military level, you, you know, suppression fire. But, like, this isn't what you would defend your home with because you would accidentally shoot family members. Um and you would only need it if you were being, you know, assaulted by like a SEAL team or something. I think where you're going to yeah. lose anyway. Um, so, but, you know, yeah. That so that idea, to, you know, it's kind of out the window if you've ever used one. <laughs> it's it's I can't uh, claim that I have. No. But you know, it, uh, I think that regardless of what the legislative piece of this is, there's got to be some discussion in our society about like, again, you know, wh- where one person's freedom bumps into another person's freedom. And the balance, again, is like obviously off kilter. So at the end of the day, do they get anything done? Will there be a bill passed uh, by Congress? I think it's highly unlikely. And again, to the extent that they do something, it will not be something that addresses the problem or or any of the problems. And and look, I mean, my kids do active shooter drills at school. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't grow up with that. And then, you know, then you have to explain to them that that actually what they're doing is an active shooter drill because they don't call them that. I think my son said that they did earthquake drills. Okay. I'm like, we don't have earthquakes where we live. <laughs> All right. I, in, in, in some ways, I think at least that's preferable. It, it feels like it puts a veil over the absolute insanity of all of this. You know, it is interesting, though, watching, because I do think there are good faith efforts to come up with some sort of, you know, a, 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 a compromise. You know, things like fixing the background checks. Uh, you know, these are these are no-brainers. I mean, the, the percentage of Americans that support this— uh, and 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 for example, even in in Texas, you know, John Cornyn has has a little bit of breathing room. He's not up for re-election for a long time. You do have a group of Republican donors and gun rights activists who've taken out full page ads saying, "Okay, we're okay with uh, with some sort of you know gun responsibility reform." So you know, you you look at the data points, and there's reason to think that things are moving, except for what you mentioned before. It is this passion gap. And that is going to be unmoved because it will, the closer they get to it, the louder and more intense the opposition is going to get. And there's absolutely no reason that I can think of that Republicans would resist it now when they have failed to resist it, you know, time and time and time again. So I, that's why I'm cynical. I mean, I, I would just say you know, we, we hear all these tropes, Charlie, like, the idea that, you know, whatever gun law gets proposed, they say, well, that wouldn't have stopped this shooting or that shooting, or it doesn't act as a deterrent to a crazy person. And I'm like, you know, we watched the Capitol get rushed on January 6th. And to my knowledge, none of the people who rushed into the Capitol were armed with semi-automatic weapons. Uh, I haven't seen anybody charged with that. And to me, what that says is they understood that if they rushed the Capitol with semi-automatic weapons, that they would A, likely be shot and be charged with much more serious crimes like terrorism. Crimes. Yeah. Well, uh, so and, I, think and, it, I think our laws do act as deterrents, even if the law doesn't specifically address a, a given situation, you can have laws that say, you know, we frown upon, uh, the easy purchase of, of AR 15s or other semi-automatic weapons. Um, 
you know, or laws that say we accept uh, the the easy purchase of semi-automatic weapons. So I, I want to talk about your big scoop this week that's generated a huge amount of buzz that Trump is considering la- launching his 2024 presidential bid this summer. So let's talk about that and know why he might be considering doing that and the internal debate in Trump world about why that might not be a good idea. But let's do that right after this. I hope you all had a great Memorial Day weekend. I know that I did. Uh, We had uh, family and friends uh, out to the Lake Cottage. And of course, because this is Wisconsin, we fire up the grill. And because I had a package from Omaha Steaks, we were able to have a great time. I have to tell you how much everybody enjoyed the entire selection. So here's a little bit of gift-giving wisdom from Omaha Steaks. Dads want steaks. And with Father's Day just around the corner, there's not a better gift than Omaha Steaks. Trust me. Visit omahasteaks.com, type Bulwark in the search bar, and order the Dad's Want Steaks package. For just $99, this limited-time package includes 16 mouth-watering entrees that he's guaranteed to love, like smoky, tender, bacon-wrapped filet mignon, gourmet jumbo franks, and their air-chilled boneless chicken breasts. And for a sweet finish, delicious caramel apple tartlets. I, I Look, I'm getting hungry just thinking about them, and I have to say that these were a big hit over the last weekend, and you cannot beat the price. And as a special gift for my listeners, when you type Bulwark in the search bar and order the Dad's Want Steaks package, you'll also get eight, eight free Omaha Steaks burgers. These burgers are full of bold, beefy flavor made from 100% Omaha Steaks, and now they're bigger than ever at a whopping six ounces. Look, don't wait. Send Dad more than just one gift. Send him an experience he's just going to love and he can share with you. So go to omahasteaks.com and type Bulwark into the search bar. Order the Dad's Want Steaks package. You'll get 16 entrees, four desserts, plus eight free Omaha Steaks burgers. Omaha Steaks isn't just steak. It's the best steak of your life, guaranteed. That's omahasteaks.com, keyword bulwark. Okay, we are back with Jonathan Allen, the senior national political reporter for NBC News, and his books include Lucky, How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency. Okay, so Jonathan, you reported this week that Trump is bored down at Mar-a-Lago and itching to get back into the political arena, and that he's not satisfied with just being a kingmaker. He wants to be the king again. He wants to be a candidate. So tell me about it. Yeah, I mean, there's this uh, this picture that advisors paint of him of, you know, he's, he's antsy. He doesn't like, you know, just endorsing people he barely knows and then watching them in some cases lose. May was tough for him in terms of the big high-profile races where he, you know, people call it the, the Trump revenge tour, you know, where he failed to unseat Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, and Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state of Georgia, and lost a couple of other gubernatorial races uh, in Nebraska and Idaho. And he... He wants to like get in. He likes being a candidate. He likes going to rallies. He likes the, um, you know, the attention that's on him. Um, and and he's itching to get in. And his advisors are sort of split between uh, this idea that you know he should wait till after the midterms, which is the traditional time uh, when presidential candidates announce, uh, or perhaps get in early, as early as this summer. Um, there are a couple of re- there are a bunch of reasons for him to not get in. The one that's cited most frequently is that if he starts a campaign, there are you know, regulations that, uh, mm-hmm. in terms of how much money he can raise for the campaign committee and the court, you know, there's a, a regulation that supposedly bans coordination between the campaign and his super PAC. Although, um, it's a very thin, uh, it's a very thin regulation that's not really enforced. 
Um, and that's one of the reasons the other, you know, other reasons include, uh, you know, not depriving, uh, Republican midterm candidates of, of attention and basically, mm-hmm. you know, taking that attention away from them and making it about his agenda rather than what they're running on. Um, but there are some advisors that think he should get in, uh, right now to harness, uh, the, the activism that he still has left over from 2020. And I think more important, uh, and I think this is probably playing on him as much as anything, uh, to try to stamp out the other Republicans who are looking at running in 2024. And of course, the big one there is Ron DeSantis, who has the limitation on when he could announce a presidential run because he's on the ballot this year, for governor, uh, right. which means he can't say he's running for president until he wins re-election in Florida, because he can't tell the voters there that he's focused on the next election while he's still running in this one. So Trump has a window where he could get in and sort of preempt DeSantis. I think it's harder for DeSantis to get into a race if Trump's already in. Well, that's the thinking. And and, and you mentioned that, you know, Jason Miller, who longtime advisor, um, talked to you and said that he has recommended that Trump uh, get in this summer and, and, and make those intentions clear because it would deny fuel to the busload of GOP hopefuls in his rearview mirror. Uh, so, um, you know, first of all, why, why would Jason Miller say that publicly? I, I'm just, I think he's I'm just trying, curious about that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I know I was I was a little surprised, too, yeah, that he was yeah. willing to um, to say that on the record. I, uh, you know, um, I, I I understood that that was his his feeling. So that's why I called him and asked him. Yeah. Uh, and he was he was finding on the record. And I, I suspect the reason is that he wants to plant a flag that allows others who feel the same to start contacting Trump and, and to tell him to, to do it now. I mean, I think that that's a, you know, a big signal or smoke signal. And you also talked to a second advisor who, who thinks that uh, Trump should stick to the more traditional route of waiting until after the midterms. Uh, and, and he uh, or she told you that the Trump uh, will likely act sooner rather than later. And Trump's obviously, you know, on the phone and he's uh, soliciting and getting new views and he's impatient. Right. So you point out that his impatience and lack of impulse control are factors here, which is always a great qualification for being the commander in in chief. I, I guess, you know, one of the things. So do you think is the is the assumption that if he announces that he's in, that that just completely clears the field for him, that that freezes the, the field? that it just freezes DeSantis out, that he's got no choice but to, you know, bow out? I think it certainly makes it harder for any of these other candidates to raise money, to yes. campaign, to go to events in early primary states. Um, you know, DeSantis is already a little bit limited on some of those things, but DeSantis has raised, he has like $100 million in his uh, re-election campaign. Um, and, you know, so the I think Trump saying, you know, straight out that he's running does make it harder for those folks to get in. It's interesting that second advisor, I thought this was an unusual burst of honesty, too, of of saying, you know, my advice is wait till after the midterms. But I don't think he's actually going to do that because he's so impatient. And what they said was, um, you know, the the question is really more, uh, does he just hit send on the press release or is he able to wait long enough to, um, you know, to put together a formal event at least? See, well, what's interesting to me, though, is that, you know, the, the big question mark is whether that would have any impact on the midterms, because, uh, you know, clearly there are a lot of folks uh, that would love to see 
Donald Trump basically being the, you know, being on the ballot. I mean, he is anyway. I mean, in, in effect, with all of the endorsements, but it certainly clarifies things, doesn't it? I mean, from the Demo- I mean, how would Democrats feel about this? Does, I mean, does it, does it sort of clarify that that we are still in the Trump era? Because I, I, I hear from, I'm sure you do as well, a lot of Democrats that sort of live in this alternative, you know, wish casting universe where they think, well, he's not really going to do it. Remember, these were the people who thought when he was elected that he wouldn't actually take office or that he wasn't interested in being president. Those people are still, I'm not sure, believing that Donald Trump is serious about becoming president again. So again, what, if any, impact does this have on the midterm? I mean, no matter how much Democrats put their fingers in their ears and and go, no, 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 no. Donald Trump is not only a reality, but he is the yes. the largest force defining our politics today. If he gets in, that will be more so the case. I yes, think exactly. that I think most Democratic midterm candidates would like to see him get in because, it, it, to your point, it clarifies. I, you know, one of his advisors said to me that a reason to wait is that if he starts a rematch with Biden too early, that it gives Biden a contrast point. Um, and it may help Biden get some better traction right now. I, th- I think that's right. And also, but every Republican candidate now will be asked uh, a series of questions, including, you know, will you support Donald Trump for reelection? They won't be able to dodge that question. That's an obvious question. Every single one will have to answer. Also, now we have every single statement that Donald Trump makes becomes a potential pitfall. You, you know, reporters will ask every Republican candidate around the country. You know, well, this is what the man that you've said that you would support for president. I said, do you agree with that? Right. I mean, so that creates that dynamic again. Not that it's not already there, but it would supercharge that before the midterm. So, I mean, how do Republicans outside of MAGA world feel about this? Do they think of this as a massive distraction? Have Republicans been sort of in denial thinking that they can keep their head down and maybe he'll just go away? I mean, it depends on the Republicans, right? If you're yeah. if you're a Trump MAGA voter, you are excited for him to be part of the discussion at all times. I, I think for a lot of um, the sort of professional Republican class, uh, they see a potential disaster in uh, in just what you talked about. Candidates being asked about Trump all the time. You know, we've been living for the last several months in a primary season uh, where Donald Trump has one effect. Um, in a general election season where the control of the House and control of the Senate are going to turn on what happens in swing districts and swing districts, which are by definition, you know, more closely divided. The the Trump questions become a, a catch-22 for candidates. They can uh, either reassure the middle uh, or reassure their base, but it's very difficult to do both of those things at once. Yeah. So th- there have been murmurs of a July 4th announcement. So if this happens, it might happen very, very quickly. I mean, so July fourth is the is the date that you're hearing. Well, I heard a couple of uh, a couple of people told me that they had been asked to reserve July fourth as a possible launch date. Um, they're not certain that it's going to happen. They were told informally to reserve it. Um, you know, one of them said to me, uh, you know, that that in Trump world, an informal reservation means nothing. <laughs> you know, yeah. Pointing to the mercurial nature of of scheduling in that universe. But, you know, if he was going to do it July 4th, we would probably know, you know, a week to 10 days out that that's what was going on. I mean, probably take about that long to put together a, a big event somewhere. So let's go back to this whole point about, you know, freezing the field, making it hard for other people. You, you know, you you point out that there are reasons to, for uh, Trump to feel some urgency, that that you are hearing the, the footsteps of some of the other Republican uh, wannabes growing louder. Uh, Ron DeSantis, Mike Pompeo, Nikki Haley. Josh Hawley, Senator Cotton, 
some have been actually been visiting the early primary states and endorsing candidates themselves or delivering high profile speeches. So and and also, as you point out, there's this uh, dynamic in which his favorites in some of the multi-candidate races, uh, you know, often fail, win or lose to finish with as much as a third of the vote. And some see that as a sign his influence is waning. So are these the kinds of things he's going, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sick of people thinking that I'm not I'm not the God King anymore. And and we, we have to shut down um, all of this other buzz for the other candidates. I mean, that is that's you know, is that part of this dynamic? Yeah, I don't think he likes reading chirons that say that uh, his influence is waning. Um, I don't think he likes uh, watching losses. Um, I think people around him would tell you if they were on truth serum that a lot of the losses are places where Trump, you know, endorsed out of a fit of pique or, you know, anger at a particular candidate and was essentially making an anti-endorsement. But, you know, we saw this, you know, J.D. Vance wins in Ohio with about a third of the vote. Uh, Dr. Oz wins in Pennsylvania with about a third of the vote. Madison Cawthorn loses his uh, renomination contest in North Carolina with about 31% of the vote bearing Trump's endorsement. What we've seen is in the most competitive races, especially when you see, you know, three or more candidates, there's about a third of the electorate that's just hardcore MAGA going to do whatever Trump says. There's about a third that will go to a candidate that is, you know, about Trumpism, but not necessarily, you know, but not endorsed by Trump. And then about a third that is anti-Trump. And you, you see a candidate like, um, you know, Brian Kemp's a great example in, in Georgia who got 70 plus percent of the vote against former Senator David Perdue. And, you know, what he did as governor was uh, push through a very Trumpian agenda in the legislature, even though Trump was going after him, which helped him secure that Trumpist, you know, the, the, the base that likes Trumpism, but not necessarily is attached to who Trump endorses. And then by virtue of the fact that Trump was attacking him, he also became the candidate of the non-Trump voters or the anti-Trump voters in the Republican Party. Between those two things, he got about 70 percent. So you have a very interesting quote in your story from uh, one of the second advisors who's more skeptical about uh, an early announcement saying that Trump in modest doses has been good for Trump, uh, that the, the the fact that he is not like in our faces all the time, you know, seems to have not hurt his poll numbers. In fact, people forget things. They they rewrite history. So talk to me about that a little bit, uh, that that thinking that that that, you know, that if he gets back in the race, then you turn up the dial and maybe remind people why they thought he was kind of disgraceful. Yeah, I, it's a dynamic that I think carries over from both of the last two presidential elections in which. Uh, the candidate that was getting the most attention and most airtime was the one that was doing worst. Uh, <laughs> right. That is to say, you know, if you watch Trump during the, you know, during those pandemic press briefings and Biden was, you know, off the trail um, for the most part, you know, in his basement where, <laughs> um, you know, th that was the time at which Trump was doing the most damage to himself. Um, you know, the Hillary Clinton folks noticed during the 2016 campaign that when she was in the spotlight, she was doing worse. And when Trump was more in the spotlight, he was doing worse. So this is very it's, a, it's something that's kind of taken hold in our politics um, in the Trump era that you don't necessarily benefit from, uh, from being the subject of attention. Okay, so let's go down the history nerd trail a bit. As, as you point out, um, there, there, there is a historical precedent for uh, presidents who've been defeated for re-election, um, waiting a term and then running again. Obviously, Grover Cleveland made the comeback in 1892 when he beat Benjamin Harrison, who had defeated him back in 18. 
88, right? So, I mean, this has happened before. It's only happened once, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't remember that election or that I set do. of elections. I, 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 I remember it well, yeah. It was um, yeah, but, and, and not only that, but the, there were six times in American history where a president has run against the person he defeated four years mm-hmm. earlier. So, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the case of Cleveland and Harrison, uh, you know, Cleveland was president, lost to Harrison, then came back and beat Harrison. But there have been several other cases where there's been a rematch, um, you know, uh, starting with, with Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, and most recently when Dwight Eisenhower beat Adlai Stevenson the second twice, twice. Uh, in 1952 and 1956. Um, so, th- you know, we haven't seen it a lot lately, but it's certainly something that has happened, um, you know, repeatedly in American history that the, the public has seen a rematch. You know, right now you have to anticipate that the most likely thing that we would see is a rematch. I'm not predicting that that's necessarily what's going to happen, but just the most likely. It is the most likely. You you know, you got me thinking, though, about sort of another almost feels like a footnote in history that almost every person who has been president wants to become president again, even if they're out of office. So, for example, uh, Teddy Roosevelt didn't run for re-election in 1908, but then ran in 1912 against his Republican successor. He wanted another term. Uh, Ulysses S. Grant apparently, you know, constantly wanted another term. Uh, Herbert Hoover thought that Republicans might turn to him sometime, you know, after his defeat. Harry Truman, I think, actually thought that, that you know, somebody was going to come to his door and give him the... I mean, it's interesting. This is not unusual that folks get the bug. What, of course, is different about this is that Trump is not likely um, to be rejected by his party, or at least not now. I mean, look, but, but you know, it's a long time. I guess that's the other thing. Announcing in 2022 and then running a campaign for two years, I mean, that's a really, really long time. I mean, that's that's a marathon. And that's a marathon for the candidate. But also, I know we've asked this before, Jonathan, but is there just a Trump exhaustion factor that he's risking igniting by having the endless campaign? They may tire of him, but they also may not have other choices that they like. Well, that's right. Yeah. And we're watching, we're watching Bernie Sanders, you know, gear up to run again. Oh, come on. <laughs> just, I, seriously? His, uh, his campaign manager from 2020 said that, uh, in a memo to allies that if there was an open seat, if Biden didn't run, uh, they should keep their powder dry and be ready for Bernie to, um, which, you know, saying that right now suggests that it's also possible that Bernie would run a primary against Biden. Okay. So how old is Bernie? Um, that's a good question. Uh, okay. You know, I mean, ish. Yeah. I mean, I can't think the answer to that is old, really, really old. See, this There's is like the a year older than Biden. There's got to be sort of a, that, that sense that, oh, my God, our politics is going to be 80-year-olds running against each other forever. I mean, it's just like... It's, we, went, we went backward generationally, right? There was this period of baby boomer presidents, and then now we're doing the pre-baby boom. Oh, my God, yeah. Okay, so one more question. So Maggie Haberman tweeted out your story and suggested that Trump's endorsement of Kevin McCarthy uh, over the weekend makes an early presidential announcement more likely. Um, you know, and I guess the logic is, is that, you know, MAGA world's not happy about the endorsement because they think that, you know, McCarthy's a, a rhino and part of the establishment. and Trump's going to be feeling, you know, pressure to shore up his base. So what do you think? Do you think there's any connection there? I'm not sure that there is, but there are a couple of things that that sort of speaks to. While it was an endorsement, I believe, of McCarthy for re-election rather yeah. than an endorsement of him uh. for speaker, 
There is a group of Trump supporters who want to see him elected Speaker of the House if Republicans take the majority. And so I think that, you know, sort of signals where Trump is, that he doesn't want to be Speaker of the House. Okay, That's one way I look at that. And then the second way is, you know, shoring up support from somebody who is, you know, influential within Republican circles. I mean, Kevin McCarthy is not the most influential person in the Republican Party, but he certainly has a significant number of allies in Congress and around the country in terms of donors and stuff. And so Trump giving that sign of goodwill to McCarthy, who is, again, you know, he was booed. McCarthy came on uh, videotape <laughs> yes. at, uh, at Trump's Wyoming rally to endorse Liz Cheney's opponent, and there was a smattering of boos in the audience. He's not loved by the Trump base. So for Trump to go out there and, and you know, extend himself a little bit for McCarthy, I think is the kind of thing that you would expect to see repaid. Okay, so let's switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, some of the awkwardness uh, among Democrats. <laughs> That's a uh, target-rich environment, by the way. But uh, more specifically, John Fetterman's health has Democrats worried. Let's talk about that right after this. If you're like me, your whole life is on the Internet. Well, that may be a slight exaggeration, but think about everything that you do, the things that you read, the things that you look at, your private communications, your banking. Using the Internet without ExpressVPN is like taking a call on a train or a bus on speaker for everybody to listen in. You don't know who has access to your most private sensitive information, so don't be that person. Here's why I use ExpressVPN. Internet service providers know every single website you visit, and they're tracking you. Don't take my word for it. And in the United States, they can legally sell this information to ad companies and tech giants who then use your data to target you. ExpressVPN creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that people can't peep on your online activity. All you have to do is just fire up the app and click one button. It works on phones, laptops, even routers, so that everybody who shares your Wi-Fi can be protected. No wonder it's rated number one by Business Insider and The Verge. And again, I use ExpressVPN every time I go online, and it is a must-have for anybody who uses the internet, which means pretty much all of you. So secure your online activity today at expressvpn.com slash bulwark and get an extra three months of ExpressVPN free, as in free. That's expressvpn.com slash bulwark, expressvpn.com slash bulwark. Okay, we are back with Jonathan Allen. All right, so uh, let's talk about John Fetterman, uh, who is Pennsylvania's lieutenant governor, the Democratic nominee for U.S. Senate. Um, He issued a statement last Friday saying that he almost died after suffering a stroke last month and that his condition was far worse than his campaign had indicated. Uh, He suffered a stroke on May 13th, had a pacemaker implanted. In a statement, he said he should have been taking the medication his doctor prescribed to him way back in 2017. His doctor issues a statement saying that Fetterman has cardiomyopathy, a disease that makes it harder for the heart to deliver blood to the body, but he will be fine. So, Jonathan, tell me, what 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 are you hearing about all of, of this? Uh, you wrote a story actually before that all happened about how Democrats are worried about uh, Fetterman's health, but also uh, the fact that he hasn't really been all that transparent about his problems. So what's going on with Fetterman in uh, Pennsylvania? 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, the story was basically that there was no timetable for his return to the campaign trail and that Democrats were, uh, as one of them put it, very nervous about uh, about both his health and, and the lack of transparency. And his, his team pushed back on that. But then, um, <laughs> then the next day basically came out with the transparency that I think a lot of those Democrats were looking for. Um, I'm not sure that that... Uh, that that made them feel any more comfortable um, because the, what, you know, what came out was um, that they had been um, at least, you know, obfuscated uh, about his actual health um, and, and his actual health is not great. Um, you know, not just a pacemaker, but a pacemaker with a defibrillator. So there's the, the pacemaker regulates the heartbeat and then the defibrillator kind of shocks the heart. If it, if it, you know, is moving toward failure, um, you know, that doesn't sound good. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think where things stand right now is the Democrats don't have much choice but to get behind Fetterman. Yeah. His campaign is doing a lot of sort of attempts to show that he, you know, that they're active. There have been a bunch of, uh, endorsement announcements in the last week. Uh, he just, uh, launched his first ads of the general election campaign. Um, you know, so I, the campaign is going on without him for the moment. So, yeah, I mean, you had reported that, that some officials were studying the state ballot replacement laws, the deadlines in August. That's unlikely now. They're, they're going to back away from that. Yeah, I mean, I think they always, even the people who were doing that thought it was a less likely scenario. My understanding is basically that what would happen is the state party committee would choose another candidate. The deadline is 85 days before the general election. I, I can't tell you which day in August that ends up being, but it's, you know, the first or second week of August, I think. But it, it seems very unlikely that that's going to come into play. I mean, he did win the Democratic primary very convincingly. I think he won all 67 counties in Pennsylvania. Um, and, you know, the other question for Democrats would be, you know, who would be a better candidate than Fetterman? He's the kind of candidate, I think, that, you know, they, they would dream up in a, in a lab in terms of his ability to communicate with uh, working class voters, you know, across the state. Um, and at the same time, you know, they are concerned about, in a lot of ways, it's the establishment of the Democratic Party concerned about the fact that it doesn't really have close ties to him. Yeah, they were not wild about it. But as you point out, you know, uh, Fetterman's not your your average candidate. I mean, he has this direct, authentic way of talking to voters who feel left out, uh, you know, people who are not college educated. He is the candidate that that knows how to talk to the kinds of voters the Democrats have lost. And as you point out, he goes to the red district, Voters think, you know, feel like he's speaking to them. And so he's been held up as a model um, of the way the Democrats can reconnect with the white working class. And the reason why this is such a huge story is obviously Pennsylvania is viewed by Democrats as, well, maybe their best uh, possible pickup opportunity in the midterms. So I, I guess the question is, you know, do questions about health, do they make a difference to the general election voter? And, and I guess one thing I'm thinking about is that John Fetterman he looks indestructible. I wonder if that's a factor. You know what I'm getting at here? If, if yeah. he was frail and old, people would go, I don't know. I don't know if he can handle it. But this guy comes out, you know, and he looks like a wildebeest. <laughs> look at the United States Senate and it does not look right. like a model of, of health. So, you know, <laughs> everything's comparative. But, uh, you know, he's in, he seems to be in better shape than, than a lot of the Senate. Uh, certainly a lot younger than most of the Senate. And to your point about talking to, to voters, I mean, you know, he put out the the first ad and it, it it feels a little bit like a Trump ad without without some of the you know without some of the like you know ominous tone but it's very much like 
you know, I'm for Pennsylvania, I'm for America, I'm not for shipping our jobs overseas, I'll end that. Um, and it's very anti-Washington. You know, it's as, as if the President of the United States and the uh, Congress are not run, you know, are not Democrats uh, at this point. He's running against Washington. Um, and, you know, in particular, the, you know, the drugs, the, the Washington approved the drugs that killed our children and things like that. So, I mean, it's it has a very, um, uh, a very MAGA feel to it. No, I, I watched that ad and I thought, this is interesting. This is a politically interesting ad. And he's clearly going after voters that uh, some Democrats have have written off. I don't have a feel for for Pennsylvania politics or or know how I, I, mean, I guess I don't have a feel about how Dr. Oz plays in Pennsylvania politics. I guess I'm struck by the fact that I mean, I think of him as this television huckster, fraudster, et, et cetera. And and he wins the primary over David McCormick with Trump's endorsement, but he just barely won it. And there was a lot of skepticism among Republicans who I assume will rally around him in the end. But, you know, I just give me a sense. I mean, Fetterman, I can see being a good fit for Pennsylvania. Dr. Oz, not so much. So just give me your state of play. How does Dr. Oz, who voted in the Turkish elections a few years ago, play in a state like Pennsylvania? I mean, and that's exactly what Fetterman's going after, right? Uh, one of he had so he had the two ads, and you know the tagline, the slogan that he's just rolling out is from Pennsylvania for Pennsylvania. You know, certainly the first part is a contrast with Oz, and and I think Fetterman would argue that the second part is also a contrast with Oz, and you know the, I think you'll see even even harsher attempts to promote that contrast from outside groups they're going to say oz is not from here and they will let the voter to determine whether that means not from pennsylvania or not from the united states but like i guess i would say it's a more republican way of, of advertising it's a kind of a harder edge than i think most democrats usually run on right so i was looking at your twitter feed uh, over the last couple of days and, and you tweeted a, one of your colleagues from nbc uh, had a story about how republicans are bracing for the next round of trump's primary chaos his demands for loyalty over electability and Republicans in Nevada, in Missouri and my home state of Wisconsin aired their frustrations uh, to uh, NBC. And I have to say that I know a lot of people here in Wisconsin kind of scratching their heads about, you know, what what uh, what Trump is doing, jumping into a very competitive governor's race, endorsing a candidate who is by no means a front runner, who does not have a lot of grassroots uh, support uh, and, and really Every time he jumps into these races, he seems to be dividing the party. And I guess this is an interesting aspect of all of this, that Donald Trump could sit back and win everywhere because everyone is MAGA to some degree or other. But he has decided instead to insert himself personally, which forces many Republicans who may be sympathetic to him to go, yeah, we're not going along with you on this race for governor or for Senate. So Give me your sense of, of of what the mood is in these in these states. Yeah, I mean, so this is a story by my colleague Natasha Karecki, who um, you know saw it happening and, and started making calls, and sure enough, uh, got got people in some of these states uh, saying, "Look, you know, we prefer the president, former president, to stay out uh, yeah. of a lot of these races." And you know, what it to to your point, I mean, it it really lays bare the limits of Trump's influence. Um, you know, again, when he, when he's winning, sometimes it's when his candidate is winning, sometimes it's with a, a very small percentage of the vote. 
you know, at the same time, what he does with all the victories is he creates this cadre of loyalists. I mean, Super uh, loyalists. if you were, you know, Tim Michaels and you're running in Wisconsin against, you know, and I, and I guess there's several candidates there, but the, the main one, uh, Rebecca Cleefish, like, right. you know, if you win that race on Trump's endorsement, you know what got you into office. Right. You are totally beholden. Yeah. On the other hand, if he loses, then other candidates who might have been much more sympathetic will feel a certain independence from him. Right. It's, I mean, it's risky. It's probably the best way to put it. So one of the strange little twists here in Wisconsin, and you, you know, Tim Michaels is, uh, is, is a business executive who ran for Senate unsuccessfully, ran a, quite an underwhelming campaign, and really has been off the radar screen politically in Wisconsin for years, jumps into a race that was already somewhat uh, competitive, including the fact that the former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish, who is clearly the front runner and probably still is, has the very strong support of the Republican, quote unquote, establishment, including Scott Walker. So Scott Walker is very strongly for Clayfish. Trump jumps in um, on Michael's side, which kind of sets up a little bit of, of tension there. And all the indications that I have seen, uh, you know, both behind the scenes and publicly reported is that one of the brokers of this deal is Reince Priebus. That Reince Priebus apparently still is advising Trump and that Reince Priebus, who used to be the chairman here, decided that he was going to go along with Michael. So, I mean, there's like factions within factions. And it, it is kind of an interesting, it, it feels kind of Byzantine, if you know what I mean. It's like, you <laughs> yeah. know, you know, trying to just sort out, you know, which elements of the Republican Party in Trump world are in various. I mean, that was true in Pennsylvania, right? I mean, you, you had David McCormick, who was the more mainstream candidate, but he had Stephen Miller. You know, the anti-immigration yeah. homunculus who was on his side. So it's become very uh, splintered, hasn't it? Absolutely. And I mean, the Kremlinology of Trump world is <laughs> endlessly fascinating if you, if you decide to dive into it. Um, but the, I think the key thing to remember is that no one's ever really cast out. And that's not terribly unusual. I mean, the, you know, the Clinton world operates like that, where, you know, someone is in disfavor or they lose a job or whatever. And then a year later, three years later, you see that they're you know, on a plane with uh, Hillary Clinton or Bill Clinton advising them. I, I think this is what's going on with Priebus, right? He's got, he's somebody who has some access to, to Trump still. And, uh, you know, Trump, uh, I think smartly um, solicits a wide range of views from, from, you know, current and former advisors on all the things that he does. I, you know, he doesn't always take the best advice or choose best, but, you know, I think it's, it's smart to, to cast a wide net. Yeah, but but it's also always risky to dive into a state um, when you don't know really what's going on. And I have to tell you, I don't think this is a, a I don't think I'm telling tales out of uh, out of school. A, a prominent Republican, former United States senator, went on to become uh, the president of the Heritage Foundation without naming any any names. I remember called me back and I can't remember what I think it was 2010. And he said, you know, we're thinking of making an endorsement um in the, the governor's race. And basically, we want to make sure that we support somebody who has strong grassroots support from the base and strong support from talk radio. And we're thinking about the, getting involved in the governor's race. And what do you think about, you know, former Congressman Mark Newman, who's running for governor? And I said, well, I have to tell you, um, that Mark Newman does not have support from the grassroots, does not have support from uh, talk radio, and uh, will lose very badly in a primary to Scott Walker. And uh, this individual, who I'm not naming, said, okay, well, that's, that's, that's very, very helpful. Thank you for your advice. And then the next day, endorsed 
Mark Newman, who then <laughs> who, who then went on to lose very badly in the primary to Scott Walker. I was like, okay, why did you make the call? What did you think? You asked very specific questions. And that's that I had that flashback to the whole Michaels thing because Michael strikes me as that kind of a candidate, somebody who's been gone for 10 years, who has a $17 million house, I think, in Connecticut or New York, you know, and suddenly dives back in with no grassroots support, as far as I can tell. I don't know what the talk radio world is doing. It's not quite as influential as it might have been. Um, and, and, and yet, you know, they're they're going they're going in and I think it's probably going to turn out the same way. But, you know. Who knows? What do I know? Right, Jonathan? Okay, I, speaking of what do you know, you were in Wyoming on a scale of one to 100. See, I'm putting you on the spot now. I know you love this. <laughs> what, what would you put Liz Cheney's chances of surviving a Republican primary at at this point? I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get into, into specific know. numbers there, but I, I, I mean, if she won, it would be an upset. It's a, so less than 50%. Okay, huge um, upset? I think it'd be a pretty big upset if she won. I think so. I'm I'm going with huge, but I but I'm but I'm willing to accept pretty big. Jonathan Allen, thank you so much for spending so much time with us on the podcast. I always appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.